Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome to episode 80 of History for Weirdos. Welcome back, weirdos. We hope you're doing well this week. We had the spring forward, which can be a little bit rough. God, and you know what? I hate those. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely hate those because I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, it's like nine o'clock already. What the hell? Yeah, and then, but it's not. It's not. Oh, it is, but it isn't. Yes. Daylight savings can be very rough. I And we've talked about this. I feel like mm-hmm. every year... The powers that be <laughs> claim that we are going to get rid of daylight savings in the U.S. And then it never happens. But it never happens. And then here we are, all kind of like groggy and dragging our feet this week. I know. The entire day of Sunday, I was just tired. Yeah. Yeah, same here. But thankfully, to lift us up, Andrew has an amazing episode planned for us. And it's continuing the Women's History Month theme, right? It is, yes. And before I get into my episode, I also have... A not-so-fun fact. What? Do you know that the Monday after the spring forward is the the highest rate of heart attacks in the United States? Yes, I did know that. Okay. <laughs> well, anyways, I hope you guys didn't know that. Now you do. That cheery fact. That's such a fun fact. I know. That's why I said a not-so-fun fact. Right. It's a not-so-fun fact, but interesting. Interesting on the list, It makes yeah. sense. That's how important sleep is. So True. We should all prioritize good sleep. And now will you tell us about the episode? Yes. Now, without further ado, I will actually go in the episode. So if this is actually really cool. This is mm-hmm. the farthest back where we've ever gone in history for weirdos. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like by far. Oh gosh. So yeah. we're going back. We're back. going back, back. Yeah. So in fact, you know what? I mean, the beginning, I'm going to have to talk about like the beginning of civilization. Oh my gosh. Well, what is the subject for today? Yes. Well, I'll get to that. Um, I just want to just emphasize that one of the most important aspects of early civilization is writing. And that's going to be kind of the main theme of this, okay. this episode. Um, and specifically one writer. So the earliest writings that we have come from around 3400 BC in present day Iraq. And these writings were from the Sumerian civilization. And the writing was, you guessed it, Sumerian. Oh, I did guess it. Yes. <laughs> and this coincides actually with the beginning of what is known as the Bronze Age. <gasps> but we know what happens to the Bronze Age. It eventually collapses. Yes, the yeah. Bronze Age collapse. And it's called the Bronze Age because it's around this time when, you know, bronze was starting to be used for tools, weapons, and armor, and all that fun stuff. So writing at this point did not utilize an alphabet that wouldn't come for another 2000 plus years at this point in time wow that's crazy to think about right they utilized what's called a cuneiform script and it's similar to egyptian hieroglyphics in that characters were used to represent entire words phrases sometimes just even sounds okay that makes sense and again not an expert in cuneiform but i don't think you stephanie nor the weirdos would expect me to actually be one and that is where you're wrong. <laughs> if you're not an expert in cuneiform, I don't even know why we're married. Yeah. I, well, man, I have to I have some stuff to do. <laughs> you could take like um, 
Like a master class in it, I'm sure. Master class on Sumerian, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure that would be really helpful in my daily life. Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> so as with writing today, you could use cuneiform to write anything from a story, like a fiction story, to record keeping and really anything in between. Mm-hmm. Except a vast majority of ancient writings um, that have been found are records and accounting documents and contracts. Yeah. So really like kind of boring stuff, but interesting in that way that it kind of represents, oh, this is you know, Joe Blow here from like 4,500 years ago had, you know, a dozen sheep and he was considered really wealthy for his time. Mm-hmm. Like it gives us insight into their mundane exactly. aspects of life. Yeah, exactly. And so um, a lot of the stories, like the oldest stories that we know would actually would have been written down much later um, oh, okay. and were most likely told through an oratory tradition at this time. So, you know, fun fact also, the ancient Mesopotamians actually had an origin story for the invention of writing. What? Yeah. That's so cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, not historically accurate, I'm guessing, but cool nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of come to an issue with ancient writings, though. Authors rarely put their names down into texts. Mm, that's very interesting to think about. Yeah. In fact, for the first thousand years of writing, authors did not inscribe their own names, you know, at least according to all of our archaeological findings. Wow. So it, you know what that tells me is that they, whatever story is, is written, they didn't see themselves as the owners. Right, exactly. But more so just like the, the writers, the messengers. Yeah, they were just like the scribe, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and this finally changes, though, in about the 23rd century BC. And to put that in perspective, this is roughly 1,500 years before Homer, who wrote you know, famously the Iliad and the Odyssey Mm -hmm. and about 2000 years before Aristotle, who was considered kind of like the father of rhetoric. Wow. So this is a long, long time ago. And I mentioned this just to illustrate, you know, the length of time that we're speaking about here. And this is where I want to introduce us to our subject today, Ened Huwana, and I'm butchering her name, but again, I don't think anyone here speaks Sumerian, so I think I'm okay. And she is... Someone's going to comment yeah. or send us a message that they actually do speak Sumerian and you're pronouncing it wrong. Right. You're and, asking for it now. I mean, yeah, that's true. I'm definitely asking for it. So, but let's see, you're saying it Edwana? No, Enhedwana. 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 And she is the first known author in history. And wow. I say she... Because the first author in history is actually a woman. Yeah, of course. Kind of crazy. Or the first, you know, recorded yes. author in history. Um, so let's talk about the world in which Enheduwana lived. So I mentioned Mesopotamia earlier, and uh, this is the general area in which she lived. The region of Mesopotamia literally means the land between two rivers. Hmm. And the two rivers being referenced here is the Tigris and the Euphrates in present-day Iraq. Mm-hmm. That's a really pretty like name for a land. Yeah, the land between two rivers. Mm-hmm. Kind of cute. And so the land of Sumer is simply just the southeastern portion where the Sumerian city-states were located within Mesopotamia. Okay. And that's kind of that was like the power center of like early Bronze Age. Okay, that makes sense. And primarily speaking, up until right before the time of Enheduanna, the Sumerian city-states would compete and fight in wars over which city would be the dominant one of that region. Mm-hmm. And so with that, the king of that city-state, you know, claiming, you know, the king of Sumer as his title. Okay. And so 
Yeah, and then in the there's this document called the Sumerian Kings List, which like dates back to like mythological kings mm-hmm. and everything. But you'll have you'll notice like dynasties. It'll be like the first dynasty of Ur, and you're like, okay, so that means the the kings of Sumer were from the city of Ur. And then, oh, okay. And then you'd see the next, the first dynasty of Uruk. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, like, this is out of order and stuff, but I'm just giving you examples. And so then you're like, okay, then the next dynasty that ruled over Sumer from Uruk mm-hmm. and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's kind of the way that this, you know, power politics worked at the time. Mm-hmm. And again, these dominant city-states would sort of have, like, a hegemony over the region, but this ruler wouldn't necessarily have, like, even though they were called the king of Sumer, it wasn't, like, a unified kingdom necessarily, as the other, like, non-dominant cities would, you know, be subservient to this king, but not necessarily, but still, I guess, maintain a lot of autonomy. So it was almost like they would defer to the king, but they didn't, they weren't, like, his subjects. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so it was kind of a weird situation. And so I know it's kind of complicated, um, weirdos. So if you're having trouble conceptualizing all of this, totally fine. It, it, this is pretty intense stuff. No, so, it's like city-state, king of Sumer. Sumer's in the okay. su- southeast portion of the land between two rivers. I oh, gotcha. Okay, wow. So it's, it's not that complicated, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you really can't cover, though, like the history of Sumer without mentioning... Uh, Akkad or the Akkadians. Okay. And so, and especially not so in this episode because Enedhuana is herself Akkadian. Okay, very so, cool. So very important. Yeah. And so the Akkadians were a Semitic group of people who inhabited the area just north-northwest of Sumer. Okay. And But still, this is still Mesopotamia. Still Mesopotamia, exactly. And so kind of like smack dab in the middle of Mesopotamia. That's like where their thing was. Okay. Where their lands were, their thing. Their, <laughs> their lands. Thing. That's their where vibe. they did their thing. They vibed over there. <laughs> So, these two groups, the Sumerians and the Akkadians, traded with each other, were culturally similar, as they had similar customs, and they wore, each worshipped, you know, the Sumerian pantheon of gods, mm. you know, maybe with some minor differences here and there. Okay. Um, however, they were ethnically and linguistically different. The Akkadian language is actually from the Indo-European language family, mm. uh, which is where English comes from. Mm-hmm. And Sumerian is what's known as a language isolate, meaning it did not belong to a language family whatsoever. It's completely unlike anything else. Those are so interesting. So interesting. I know. It's crazy because I, I would be ter- a terrible linguist, but I still find it very interesting. Can you give us a modern day language isolate example? Is Hungarian one? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I think so. People, I think, will mistakenly group it as a Slavic language, but it's not. I'm pretty sure it's a, an isolate one. Yeah, definitely. But again, someone could tell us otherwise. But that's just what I've heard. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I could think of any others. I certainly can't. I mean, they're rare. They're rare, yeah, because you language similar to trading goods and coins and things like that often language gets traded between especially neighboring cultures so it's so interesting to me when one is so different and distinct it's not around anymore but etruscan was also one yep yeah so there yeah there we go and so i think this is probably enough generalized background Mm -hmm. for now i i want to get back to enedwana and this is what's difficult about you know things that happened so so long ago is that her early life is very obscure, and we have pretty much no written documentation for her. 
Yeah. Uh, in her early life. It's, again, it's not super surprising, though, given, you know, not only the length of time, mm-hmm. but also, you know, Akkadian and Sumerian were incredibly patriarchal societies. Yeah. So, you know, she was a woman in one of those societies. Again, it's another layer on top of that. Yeah. Just throughout history in general, we, we know less about, like, a woman's day-to-day Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it usually like with these types of things, it's only like we know of royalty. Of royalty. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Thank you. Um, But speaking of royalty, actually, I think it's a really good time to bring up who her father is because he's incredibly important. His name is Sargon of Akkad. And he's important Uh, because he's also another first. He is the first. uh, He created the first empire by conquest in history. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he's a very very big deal um in fact so much so i I had i think i had a note later on um but he created this tradition that i know in about this either the the sixth or seventh century a.d a persian ruler did what he did and that's you know he was separated by almost roughly three thousand years that's insane i think i I think i wrote in my notes so i'll get to it eventually but i was like you know he was a big deal sargon of akkad sargon of akkad that sounds totally like it's in the lord of the rings universe (laughs) (laughs) and but you know luckily because of his political and military ambitions we we know the name of Edwana. right uh, because without him i I doubt we would Mm -hmm. so kind of you know kind of lucky lucky for us so I'm going to gloss over just Sargon and and real in this episode and just really try to focus on like some of his most important achievements that are relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a lot, but I'm just again just going to kind of do his highlight reel. So um, Akkad is a city that's like smack dab in the middle of Mesopotamia. So strategically, it's a good location. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, archaeologists have never found it. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah, they've never found it. We know it's somewhere in the middle of Iraq today, but that's it. Oh, wow. And we found, like, all the Sumerian, you know, not all, but, like, a lot of the big um, ancient Sumerian cities and, like, in in the later Assyrian ones. Uh Uh-huh. Not a cod. That's fascinating. Yeah. And Sargon first conquers all of Sumer, defeating the dominant king of the time, Lugal Zagasi. Mm-hmm. And we actually mentioned both Sargon and Lugal Zagasi way back in episode 49 on Zenobia. Yeah. And this was specifically in the context of like a great leader who was just, you know, unfortunately outmaneuvered by an even greater leader. Wow. Yeah, at the time. And Lugal Zagasi, and if Sargon wasn't around, he would probably be like one of the big names of this time period. I mean, he is, but he would be the Sargon, probably. Okay. So, after the conquest of Sumer in the southern region of Mesopotamia, Sargon extends his conquest into northern Mesopotamia, and then also west into the Levant, finally ending at the Mediterranean Sea. Oh my gosh. And here is what I I mentioned earlier, is he infamously washed his weapons in the sea, which would be a tradition that, you know, that rulers would do for another 3,000 years ish years no big deal no big deal that's quite a tradition to start i mean even trajan when he conquered mesopotamia he ended at, in sumer okay um actually though it's funny though the water shifted during the time because there was some some climate change so it was actually further south mm-hmm. so it was a little bit actually weirdly south of sumer and he ended the persian gulf and he did the same thing he washed his weapons that's cool and that was a roman who didn't necessarily view you know, the uh, Mesopotamians in the greatest light. They right. had reverence, but they didn't view them with like, you know, like 
like, you know, other uh, Mesopotamian figures did with Sargon. Uh-huh. But still, even Trajan did that. Yeah, as like a, a nod of respect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it's a, that's a really quick recap of his conquests. And we get to the part where Enhidwana plays an important part in solidifying his rule, actually. Mm. And it's finally also when she gets in, like, entered into the historical record. So Sargon appoints Enhidwana as the high priestess of the moon god Nana, or sometimes known as Sin, mm. in the Sumerian city of Ur, being one of the oldest and most highly regarded cities in Sumer. Okay. And so this was important politically for Sargon, as now his daughter was a highly, you know, was in the highly prestigious position within the priestly class of Sumer. Okay, and, and I assume they had power then. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. big time power. Um, it power, not in the necessarily like overt political sense, but power in that like, oh, the common people will follow them. Right. They're very influential. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this not only establishes legitimacy for Sargon, um, but it gave Enhidwana a pretty cushy gig because as the high priestess, she was able to preside over the city's temple complex within the heart of the city and really like the kind of the heart of Sumer. Mm-hmm. And in a more nuanced manner, she was able to keep the Sumerian population in check through religious adherence. Mm-hmm. And Sargon is like the leader of of her and the religious adherence. Wow. So yeah. he really gave her, like I said earlier, I guess like a lot of power. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, he must have really trusted her because mm-hmm. this was a very important position. Mm-hmm. I would think so. So she must have been a very, very um, adept person. And we see throughout so many cultures, um, you know, I'm thinking of Aztecs personally, yeah. but so many ancient cultures, the, the most important like deities and therefore like priests and priestesses were those of the moon and the sun. Yeah. Always. So it's just cool to see that existed even then. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, almost 4,500 years ago. Uh, many hymns and prayers to Nana and other gods would be written down in this time. And credited to her, wow. her first very first works. That's so cool. And again, we've said this in a previous episode, probably previous episodes, but it bears repeating. Religion was just so intertwined with daily civic life in the ancient world that you really couldn't separate the two. Yeah, we talked about that a lot in the Vestal Virgins episode. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And so eventually... Sargon dies mm-hmm. at some point. Well, we probably know. I just didn't write it down. And, you know, just as all future uh, conquerors would eventually find out, having succession plan <laughs> for a multi-ethnic empire is not easy. Yeah. Not easy. Long story short, his son and Hedduana's brothers jointly rule for, you know, a short time before Sargon's grandson slash and Hedduana's nephew named Naram Sin becomes the new emperor. Okay. Yeah, Naramsin is actually pretty important in his own right. I'm not going to go into it, but he was a, a an adept ruler. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. It's definitely good for an Eduan, and we'll see. So the, so the political imbalance in this new empire creates instability, which ultimately leads to revolts breaking out. Yeah, that always happens. Because of course. Yeah. And one such rebel in the city of Ur itself is a guy by the name of Lugal Ane. Okay. And he essentially becomes the self-proclaimed king of Ur and tries to inf- or to force Enedidwana to give him her blessing as the high priestess. Oh my gosh, that's so rude. Yeah, and she refuses <laughs> as her father was literally Sargon and 
so then she's banished from the city. What? Yeah. Um, in one of her works, actually, she describes the events by saying, and this is in quotes, obviously translated, he has turned that temple into a house of ill repute, referring to her temple. Right. Forcing his way in as if he were an equal. He dared approach me in his lust. <gasps> he made me walk a land of thorns. He took away the noble diadem of my holy office. He gave me a dagger. This is just, this is just right for you, he said. Oh, Basically snap. egging her to kill herself. Yes. Yeah. Not a good time. And it's also, you know, certainly implied that he tried to force himself on her. Yes. In the, at least in the very least. Yes, that's definitely what I was thinking too. Yeah. So not a, not a good dude. Oh my gosh. Her writing is very um, beautiful though. Even she's describing something so horrifying. We'll have, I'll have some more excerpts from her writing. She, she was in pretty good. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> or at least the person translating her writing was, was pretty good. <laughs> Imagine having that job. Yeah, it's... I That's mean, nuts. there's not a lot of people that can translate, translate Sumerian that. or Akkadian. No, definitely not. And so... But it's because of this, though, like, unfortunately, fortunately, mm -hmm. that we actually get her most famous writings, which also provide a good account of, like, the historical record. Mm -hmm. At least from her point of view. Mm-hmm. And her most famous work has been translated as The Exaltation of Inanna. And this is different than Nana. Mm -hmm. This is a different goddess. So Inanna is a goddess. Nana is a god. Mm -hmm. And actually a note, uh, Inanna um, is the Sumerian goddess of love, war, beauty, and fertility. Which her most oh. famous equivalent is her Greek equivalent, which is Aphrodite. That's so interesting, though, because I would think of Aphrodite... Except beauty, fertility, and love, I don't, I've never seen them coupled with war. Yeah, that one's interesting. That's so interesting. And I also love, by the way, that we do have the records from her perspective, because as we mentioned earlier and have probably mentioned before, we very rarely get records of women, let alone stories told from a woman's point of view. Right. So that's really special I to have so that. I think so too. I really like it. And I actually want to read lines 20 through 33 of the poem, as I think it not only illustrates the prevailing attitude towards the gods, but it's just honestly some pretty impressive writing. Yay! I love poetry, so <laughs> this is awesome for me. So this is her poem. Quote, At your battle cry, my lady, the foreign lands bow low. When humanity comes before you in awed silence at the terrifying radiance and tempest, you grasp the most terrible of all the divine powers. Because of you, the threshold of tears is opened, and people walk along the path of the house of great lamentations. In the van of battle, all is struck down before you. With your strength, my lady, teeth can crush flint. You charge forward like a charging storm. You roar with the roaring storm. You continually thunder with ichor. You spread exhaustion with the storm winds while your own feet remain tireless. With the lamenting Balaj drum, a lament is struck up. Ooh, snap. <laughs> and poets, we snap. But I know. that's so cool. That was good, wasn't it? That was very epic sounding, very beautiful. And as... Hearing you read it, it explained to me a little bit more why they uh, have paired the goddess of like love with war because a lot of people have equated the two to be very similar. Right. 
There, there's like this dark side of love, right? Yeah, I really like that you said that because like my interpretation of this is like she's almost blaming the goddess mm. for what is happening, but while also acknowledging that she is so powerful that she can change course. Yes. And you know what? I just don't see the Greeks or the Romans talking to their gods like this. I think it's very unique. She's speaking very directly to her. Yes. And it's also really interesting because in the same work, she appeals to Inanna to in turn appeal to the god On in order to restore Anantuana to a rightful place. Wow. So it's inter- you it's interesting you were mentioning that because you know from a historical view it's really important piece as we can see that even highly regarded folks still have their you know quote unquote personal gods to whom they could appeal. Yeah. It's so so interesting. This is not meant to be offensive at all. This is why I always <laughs> say that I think Catholics are just like pagans for Jesus. <laughs> because we so many Catholic traditions, I think because they engulfed a lot of um, pagan traditions, mm-hmm. are just very ancient. Like in Catholicism, people will pray, yes, to God, to Jesus, stuff like that. But you pray to like your personal saints as well. Like people are given a saint, it's usually their name. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your saint doesn't have a name, then it's usually the day you were born. That saint day is your saint. So if you're really asking for help with something tough, you would ask your saint to ask God to help you. Oh my God. Isn't that incredible? That's just like that. Yeah. Like this is, I mean, who knows? Maybe that dates directly back to Mesopotamia. That's so cool to think about. Yeah. How, I don't know. Time, man. Time. (laughs) (laughs) History, man. That was beautiful, though. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. And it again, it's just like you mentioned. It's really interesting in that they couldn't, you know, appeal to the supreme god. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, Na or An. Excuse me. I know all the. They sound similar. Oh yeah, no, Inan or yeah, Inanna or just Nana. Too. It's too much. It's too much for you, guys. Come on. You're trying your best. (laughs) Yeah. I just think it's really interesting that, yeah, like you mentioned, that they just had these these personal gods, but they couldn't, you know, they weren't worthy enough to uh-huh. go straight to the source. Yeah. They had to have someone like, like a, almost like a lawyer in the heavens. Yes, it's like someone that's vouching for you. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, no, don't worry. I know this lady. She's cool. You should help her get unbanished. It's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> like... You know, in college, when you'd go to, you know, like your friend's fraternity party, you're like, oh, no, no, I know David. Like, you know, and then David's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know Andrew. He's cool. Let him in. You know, kind of like that. Did you ever think in your life that you would have a podcast where you were comparing fraternity life to like ancient Sumerian life? Absolutely. You did? Okay, good. (laughs) So back to Anandawana here and not about fraternity life. During her exile, she wrote two um, of her most well-known works uh, as in addition to the other one. Wow. So uh, she, they're all kind of similar sounds. So mm-hmm. we, we covered the exaltation of Inanna. The other two were the hymn to Inanna, as well as Inanna and Ibe. Wow. That's so interesting. I don't know who has this quote, um, but it's a famous historical figure that the best art is made during times of turbulence. Yeah. That's when artists get to work, basically. And it sounds like that's what she did. She did, yeah. The most famous works. 
And, you know, thankfully, though, for our girl, she was not in exile for too long. Yay! Yeah, remember I said Naram Sin was gifted, and he was more molded in the shape of his grandfather rather than his father, and he quickly reunited the empire. Good, good. I was worried. Yeah. She most likely returned to her position as the head priestess, but, mm-hmm. you know, from here on out, she actually is not accounted for in the historical record again. Oh, my god. So gosh. we don't know, you know... If she, you know, when she died, if she died, when she (gasps) died, died. (laughs) she's still alive. She's like over 4,000 years old. She's listening to this podcast. (laughs) That would be incredible. (laughs) She's like, no, you guys, she writes in. I'm still alive. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) Andrew, your your Sumerian was on point. Your Sumerian was on point. That's definitely what she'd say. Yeah. So we don't know if she remained priestess, if she, I don't know. We think she did. Okay. We think she did. I mean... It sounded like... That's her nephew that's ruling, so Exactly. And she's... I don't think... I'm pretty sure she didn't have any kids on her own as she was the priestess. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even then, like, they weren't a threat to her. And I think... with And she's an ally. Mm Mm-hmm. So... It sounds like no news is good news type of thing. I think so. Like, what most likely happened is what what I'm thinking is that she went back to being a priestess and was able to live out her days um, in this really well-regarded position. Exactly. And even Lugal Aibe didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming... Probably no one would have then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would have been seen as sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you know, or I, I guess I just want to say, like her impact it cannot be overstated in the affairs of the not only Mesopotamia, but really the ancient world. And even to today mm-hmm. um, you know first of all her the way her way of writing you know inserting herself into the scripts was literally unprecedented you know this completely changed the literary tradition in the region and it and after this point it became far more acceptable to write your name in the middle of works thank goodness yeah because my i know you're an author yeah so. my hubris i'm not down for the anonymous <laughs> <laughs> the anonymous writing thing <laughs> That doesn't sound fun to me. Yeah, no, not at all. I want to get some credit. (laughs) And, you know, secondly, her writings really helped solidify the the reign of Sargon. And not only that, but unified the thinking of the populace when it came to religion. Wow. So the union of the pantheon of um, Akkadian gods and Sumerian gods can really be, you know, attributed to her works. At least the the beginning of it, for sure, for certain. And that's always beautiful. I think when you're able to tell people that their faith is the same, that's right. such a beautiful way to unite a people's or to like you know have everyone feel acknowledged and recognized. Yeah. So good for her. I think so as well. And in fact, her works were so celebrated that for well over a thousand years, her um, her scripts were transcribed countless times in the writing schools in Mesopotamia at the time called edubas. Wow. Yeah. For over a thousand years? For over a thousand years. People were still teaching her stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but not everyone knew how to read and write at the time. Okay. In fact, like a vast majority of people did not. Yeah. And you would have to hire a scribe to write down contracts, accounting of your livestock, or just write anything you wanted written down. Right, right. I think... That's a good reminder because we take for granted, obviously, oh, yeah. literacy. Absolutely. And it, it was not, it was like the opposite. 
yeah. back then. It was for a, a very small portion of people. Right, exactly. Would it, would, would it be possible for like kings at this time to not know how to read and write and just rely oh, on yeah. their scribes? No, they definitely didn't know how to do it. That's so nuts to think about. Yeah, in fact, um, and it's funny, he, he just comes up. Uh, so a later, a much, much later Neo-Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, knew how to do it, knew how to read and write. And that was a big deal. And you love Ashurbanipal. I love Ashurbanipal. I've heard Andrew mention him before. Yes. I, I'm going to share this personal tidbit. Yes, please. For a while, we we don't have kids and, and we're not trying at the moment to have kids. But Andrew was hypothetically saying, we should name our son Ashurbanipal. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I vetoed that one yeah. but he does sound like a cool dude yeah he was pretty cool um he was neo-assyrian so he was incredibly bloodthirsty but he was an enlightened <laughs> bloodthirsty king i mean so bloodthirsty you'd probably make the romans blush oh my gosh well i'm glad that i vetoed naming a potential child <laughs> yeah. after the bloodthirsty king but he was badass <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting though because he had in the ancient world up until this time he probably had the largest library and wow. i and Ugh. i again ironically enough it was fire that <gasps> um no that saved his library oh, thank God. because the every writing at this time was in clay tablets oh my god and gosh. so when you create add fire to it it just solidifies it and so like sinks in yeah and so like cuz with other clay tablets you can kind of you know mush it together and it almost as an eraser yeah and then just start over but this solidified it and so Thousands of tablets were recovered, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries um, from the library of Ashurbanipal, who, by the way, lived and a lot of her works were present. And, you know, his library was, you know, at its peak was like 1500 years after Enedulana died. Wow. And her stuff was written in there on clay tablets. Yes. That is nuts. Also, for some reason, you've been really emphasizing how long ago Enedulana was. But the clay tablets is what did it for me. <laughs> That's so nuts. That's yeah. how far back all of this is. Yeah, paper wouldn't be a thing for millennia. Wow. Yeah. That's Kinda crazy. Kind of crazy, yeah. I think paper was invented in China. I think so. Yeah. yeah, and it would take a very long time from now. And it wasn't just clay tablets. Like mm -hmm. you could write, I think animal skins were even used as well as uh, reeds. Like okay, reeds, reeds put together. Yeah, I think that, that the Egyptians pioneered that one. So, and but the problem with those types of writings is it's organic material. Yeah, so, it, so it'll decompose. It'll decompose exactly. Mm -hmm. and we don't. We have very little of those types of writings left. But so, clay tablets, literally thousands. Right, and that's why in a lot of ancient um, cities and countries, it's always the like inscriptions on buildings and marble and things like that that survived that were able to yeah. piece things together exactly that's so interesting and you know lastly you know her works really influenced certain gods over others and would set the stage for millennia on which gods were important oh damn she got to pick which gods were the cool yeah ones? in fact it was probably because of her relationship with inanna mm -hmm. um that she was elevated the goddess inanna was elevated to a very high position of worship and she was known by a lot of names, and some of them you will probably know. Mm -hmm. So the Babylonians would eventually call her Ishtar. Like the Ishtar Gates? Like the Ishtar Gates. Wow. The Hittites would see her as Sauska, the Phoenicians as Astarte, and of course the Greeks, Aphrodite, and the Romans, Venus. That is crazy. Yeah. That is so cool. And that really speaks to what you talked about at the 
you know, earlier on how influential her position was. Exactly. And she really used it mm-hmm. to like, ad- you know, advance, you know, her, I guess, or, you know, her father's, you know, political legacy and all that, but also just, you know, like things like this, her like the spiritual gods. perspective. Yeah. Ex- yeah. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better. Thank mm-hmm. you. And a seriologist think that she was actually also the first woman to hold the position as the main priest oh. or priestess of Nana and Ur. So the fact that she did such a legendary job meant that women, you know, could hold religious high offices. Yay! And we see that through the course of different um, ancient civilizations from here on out, and even including the Vestal Virgins. Yes, and it's with such limited, uh, you know, opportunities for women that's so nice that she was able to carve this path. Right, and we don't know if, you know, of course it's impossible to know, like, whether... You know, like the vessel virgins came about directly or indirectly because of Anahuana. Um, if that could be left up to interpretation, but personally, I feel like she played a, a prominent role for certain mm-hmm. um, in those. You know, women being able to ascend to high levels in you know the priestly classes of their you know different civilizations. Yeah, at least in this, these very patriarchal ones. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, unfortunately, she is forgotten and we lose the ability to read cuneiform. So she is just largely, you know, ignored, lost. Yeah. Yeah. But throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, excavations in Iraq lead to not only the ability to translate Akkadian Sumerian, but to her rediscovery. Yay. Yeah. So the biggest find came in 1927, I guess the, the initial find that kind of put her back on the map, so to speak, was when <laughs> British archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley found the now famous Enedhuana calcite disc in his excavations at the Sumerian site of Ur. That's so cool. Imagine finding that. I know. It's really cool. Also, the I totally romanticized the like late 1920s archaeologists <laughs> all over the world. Like that was also when they were doing the major excavations on the Roman Forum and things yes. like that. Like what a fun job. I just think they were learning so much about these ancient civilizations and I think it was blowing their minds about how advanced they actually were. Yes. Like we really undersold them. Like some of these civilizations, like especially the the Sumerians and the Akkadians were very advanced for like so far back i mean yeah. like you know sargon of akkad was more foreign in terms of time uh to you know julius caesar than julius caesar is to us that's weird to think about yeah like it's a i mean it's a long time mm-hmm. that we're talking about here and so um this famous disc reads enheduana zero priestess wife of the god nana daughter of sargon king of the world in the temple of the goddess inanna Wow, that's quite a title. That was, I know. You know, ironically, um, this guy, this um, uh, Sir Leonard Woolley, he ignored a lot of her work at first because he was more interested in her father and other, you know, quote-unquote strong men of the time. I mean, we expected that. <laughs> I know. Is that even remotely, like... Surprising. Yeah. He was like, oh, some priestess that writes, like, poetry and stuff, whatever. <laughs> like, whatever. Who cares? Mm-hmm. And he was... He literally... I think when he was reporting his findings, he didn't even mention her name. He was just like, oh, the daughter, the high priestess slash daughter of Sargon. Yeah, which is why this happening throughout history is why we celebrate something like Women's History Month, right? Right, yeah. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I know it would be great if we didn't need to have Women's History Month if like women's history was just really well incorporated into history. Yeah. But that is sadly not the case. Not the case yet. Not the case yet. Hopefully one day. Yeah. 
I know it's a weird thing to say. Like, I hope we don't have Women's History Month <laughs> in the future because you might automatically you're like, oh, that guy's a huge bigot or, yeah. you know, a misogynist or whatever. But it's like, no, no, it's like the opposite. Yeah. So that it's all incorporated and everyone gets their, you know, gets to tell their story and gets their stories represented. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Don't cancel me, guys, please. <laughs> <laughs> So in the years that followed, archaeologists and looters, because of oh, course, wow. stupid looters, I, 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 tangent, I hate people that like screw up archaeology and, and they're history. they're trying to steal stuff. But anyways, <laughs> going back to, to Enhidwan and her legacy, her words and tablets were also found in other sites besides mm. Ur. Like, you know, I mentioned the library of Ashurbanipal, mm-hmm. uh, but also in other Sumerian cities like Nippur and Larsa. Um... Her body of work wasn't transcribed, though, published, and attributed to her until the late 50s and 60s. That's how long it took? That's how long it took. Right, because they were probably overlooking her for most of the time. And then it takes a long time to piece together, oh, this is the same person, this is the same poem, this is the same hymn. And again, it's like, you know, translating things from like, you know, Mm -hmm. Spanish to English. There are literally millions of people that can do it. But from Sumerian to English, it's far fewer amount of people. Right. So... And it wasn't until 1968, actually, that the first translation of her writing from Sumerian into English appeared. Wow, that's so recent. I know. And of course, though, there's been controversy as well with many skeptics claiming that, you know, she had a scribe that wrote for her. That's so silly. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it it kind of makes sense in that, like, that you'd have these types of discussions and that it just happened so long ago and that, you know... You know, this is like all of a sudden you have this person that's like, that's actually ascribed to these writings. Um, yeah. And, but you know, I'll just, I'll kind of give the counter argument to that. in that, you know, Benjamin Foster, he's a prof, uh, professor of Assyriology at Yale, which by the way, Assyriology is the study of Mesopotamia, um, is convinced though that her writings were truly her own. Um, he's quoted as saying, quote, there's a tendency in our field to regard it as a sign of wisdom not to take ancient texts at their word. It's not cool to be excited and emotional. <laughs> you should keep a detached skepticism. But we have more evidence for her than we have for any other author in ancient Mesopotamia, end quote. Yeah, that's a good point. Exactly. And he's convinced, you know, because of the autobiog- mm-hmm. autobiographical nature of the works. I'm not even sure I said that right. Autobiographical? Thank you. That's a hard word to say. Wow. <laughs> autobiographical there we go um as well as the peculiarly another one (laughs) another peculiar word peculiar word yeah peculiarly female markers in the work so uh in particular he's referencing the exaltation of inanna so the and you know and specifically he's referencing the language of sexual violation the metaphor of writing as childbirth and even the preference for the goddess rather than the god that's very intimate writing yes it would be something you write when you're by yourself. Yes. Not something that you're telling someone else to write. Yes, thank you. You That's... might censor yourself a little more. Exactly. And also scribes at this time were universally male. Men. So yeah. like they just, they wouldn't know to put that. And they wouldn't feel comfortable, I'd imagine. Even if she was like, write that down. Exactly. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm with this guy. I'm with um, Benjamin Foster. Yeah, I like Benjamin Foster. He's at Yale. So in addition for providing topics for debate, you know, in terms of her legacy, she also helped us understand the world and shape the 
like of her time and shaped the world for countless generations up until our time. Yeah. You know, we live in a world that was in small part shaped by Enheduanna. Mm. And this story has been the life and most importantly, the impact of her. That's so beautiful. I love that you are giving her her due. Yeah, definitely. I feel like she absolutely deserved it. She is going to be a personal patron saint of mine now when I write. Yeah, I think, I didn't write this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure, because I couldn't find like a lot of sources for it, but I think there was like a movement in the 70s, like, um, where she was like a feminist icon. Hell yeah, she was. (laughs) I knew you would like that. That's not surprising at all. Yeah, she was really interesting. This was a very hard episode to write because of the lack of like sources. Yeah. And I, you know, I had to kind of read between the lines and there was a lot of conjecture and, and such. Kind you of, did beautifully. Thank you. And just piecing it together. And also there's just, I mean, admittedly, not a lot about her life. Yeah. But you gave us a lot of really good context as to like the world she would have been living in and the impact that she had later on. Thank you. So I appreciate you. that. Yeah, of course. And lastly, my sources for this episode, we had The New Yorker, uh, a great article, article by the Getty, the World History Encyclopedia, the BBC, and of course, Wikipedia. That was awesome, babe. Thank you so much for telling us the story of Enhedwana. Thank you, weirdos, for listening to another episode. As usual, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at history weirdos and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already. It helps us grow. Yes, you guys are so awesome. Thank you for the growth that we've already have. And yeah, let's continue to make the weirdo community even bigger. Yes, until next time, weirdos. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>